0: As Matt has mentioned, it's been 10 years since we moved into the building, and um, I want to take just a few minutes to remind this congregation what has happened to us since that happened. This congregation is 122 years old this year. We've transitioned five times. Each time we've outgrown the facility that we were in, the last time it was a building about 200 yards to the south. It was where the Ott Science Hall is now. It was a single-story brick, 35,000-square-foot building with about 500 seats in the sanctuary, hard pews, which they called state-of-the-art. They punished you for an hour every time we had a service. The classrooms were large, but they were cold and somewhat sterile. There were 32 leaks in the roof. I know this because I helped set up the waste baskets every time it rained. We felt God had a vision that was larger than that building as IWU was growing up around us. We were getting swallowed in the center of the university and did not see ourselves and don't now as simply a chaplain. We see ourselves as a bridge between the academic world and Marion, that, that the academic world is trying to reach. And so on a wing and a prayer, we came out and bought five houses in about a year and a half worth of time, tore those houses down, circled the grounds, and uh, with stones that we'd prayed over for a month, threw those stones into the center of the lot that College Church currently sits on. If you have been coming to this church for more than 10 years, I wish you would just stand for a moment so I can see who all the uh, seniors. Look at this. Now look around the room and know the number of people that have been coming here for a long time. Thanks, you can be seated. But the number of people that have not for whom this is all new territory. Starting in 2005, we raised a few million dollars. IWU gave us a generous amount of money to buy the old building. And then with the help of Bud Leach, Bud, you're in the back. I just saw you, brother. Stand up. He's about 30, stand up, man. He's about 32 years old. Can you tell? It's beautiful, man, thank you. Trustees got around him, took 18 months, about $10 million, and between the money we got for the building and the money we raised, we moved in, and it was two-thirds paid for. This building has um, several features that I think are important for you to know because they convey the spirit of our church, and I want you to know this. One, the first obvious one, is that the steeple that is over the top of the atrium out here faces north and south, not the traditional east and west. We broke with tradition because we felt that we needed to send Marion a message and ourselves a message as well, that we are here for the city of Marion as much as for anyone else. We also carry uh, in this building several artifacts from the last three or four churches. There's a stone or a cornerstone from 1938. There's a steeple from that building. There's a cross behind me on the wall, which a lot of people really didn't like when it was in the old facility. By the time I got here, I think it was down completely. Um, And there is a communion table over in another room with stained glass glass And we're trying to convey that we bring with us the past. We're not just reinventing ourselves every few years to be cool and trendy. We belong to a history that's bigger and older than us, and we're simply the next generation of that. The other thing that I want you to note is that there are theological symbols that are embedded throughout the building. You might miss them. Underneath the center of the atrium is a little stone center where we have baptized infants before directly under the steeple or the sign of the cross. There's a baptismal on your way into the sanctuary indicating that one is baptized into the body of Christ. That's what actually happens at baptism. On the wall behind me is a story. If you get bored with my sermons, more Sundays than I care to admit, uh, you can start on the upper left and work your way counterclockwise, and you will see everything from the beginning of creation to the new creation at the top in the other world. There are symbols that are embedded in that. Throughout this church, there are theological symbols that convey our commitment to the historic Christian faith. I realize this is a time when uh, buildings are pretty much utilitarian. We like to build functional black boxes that are cheap and that hold lots of people, but we intended to do something a little different, not to be peculiar, but because we were trying to convey something. The reason the platform is so large and so high is we're trying to convey the light and the lift and the reverence that we think comes in worship. And we're also trying to shrink every personality that comes onto this platform so there is no one bigger than the church. I have a friend in South Dakota who is district superintendent over several churches, about one-third of the U.S. actually. <laughs> he has several churches in his district now with more than a thousand. He tells me he thinks college church is a centering church. I asked what that means. He said churches today are getting large by adjusting their message, tailoring their message And by following the trends of the culture, there's nothing wrong with this, he said, but they tend to veer from one side to the other. Now listen to what he said next. He said, that's fine for some generations to do this, but we are safe only so far as there is a centering church. There has to be an anchor or our tendency will be to drift You are that church. I thought, why can't we just be cool? (laughs) That being said, when we moved into this building, our personality changed. We got more um, aggressive with outreach than ever before. Since we moved into this building, we've sent... A hundred volunteers into Francis Slocum School to mentor at-risk kids one hour a week all school year long. It's almost unheard of. So important was that to Francis Slocum School that at one time they were talking about this at the Department of Education in Indianapolis. They'd heard of the school, they'd heard of our church, and they'd heard of the alliance between them. Since we moved into this church, we released a couple core curriculums, Faultline and Soul Shifts, which have now gone out to over more than 2,000 congregations around North America. Um, thousands and thousands of people have built their uh, spiritual formation around these things. Since we moved into this church, we opened our doors and invited the community to have their meetings here. I could be wrong about this, but my my. my vision is that the church is a place where the community should come to solve its problems. It's not just a place to worship and isolate ourselves. It's where leaders from all different domains meet to work on community problems. So every year in this building, we host more than 700 events that we don't sponsor. That's almost two events a day that are not college church sponsored events. We're not in charge. Somebody else's. Everything from the mayoral debate to a blood drive happens now inside of this building. We've hosted festivals where we trained hundreds of pastors from more than a dozen different denominations in the teachings of spiritual formation and holiness message so our heart has shifted as well too I've talked to you in the last couple weeks about the mission of this church and how I'm concerned we never drift from the thing we were committed to today I want us to hear a word from the Lord on the message of our church
1: Here now a portion of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Because of Christ, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. But how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself Christ and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself no longer counting people's sins against them. and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so we are Christ's ambassadors God is making his appeal through us we speak for Christ when we plead come back to God As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Great, what a great passage. Okay, you guys, let me tell you what I think is the core of this thing that you just heard. It's pretty radical if you think about it. What it suggests is that our fundamental problem is that we are alienated. Our fundamental problem is that we are lost. Think about that. It's been so long since we've heard that message. And when a person is lost... When a person has no grounding, all sorts of symptoms show up in their lives. And what happens is we chase those symptoms and think if we can solve those problems, their problems will go away, but they don't until we solve the fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem with all of us, says Paul, is that we are alienated or strangers. We are foreign to the promises and to the God who made those promises, We are without hope and without God in this world. When our kids were small, we'd take them to the mall. And because they uh, liked to practice independence, they would uh, wander away from mother's sight or from daddy's reach. It's funny when you're a kid, you want to be free from your parents as long as you know you have parents. So they would go and hide inside the coat rack, or they'd run around the corner, they'd run down into the dressing room, So we couldn't find them, as if they were all on their own. So the only way I knew to train them was to pretend like they'd succeeded. Like we'd left them all. So when they would hide inside the coat rack, I'd disappear around the corner. And when they come out of the coat rack, now looking for their parent, a look of defiance, a look of fun suddenly became a look of horror. It was delightful. I wanted them to know that while independence is a wonderful thing, it's only a wonderful thing as long as you're anchored to something that never moves. Otherwise, everything is moving all the time. I had a college student who said the same thing happened to him. Only his mother left thought he'd run out in the hall and went into the hall looking for him. When he came out of the co-wreck, she was actually gone. He went running up and down the hall screaming for his mother and couldn't find her for the longest time until he found a security guard and they made a bunch of announcements and finally he was reunited. When a person is separate from a parent... Strange things can happen. And those things can stay with you for the rest of your life. And let me be clear about this. Even if you're a Christian, you can bear symptoms of these things. If you wonder with no parent, who am I? And where do I belong? You will start giving yourselves to everyone but really you'll give yourself to no one you talk about yourself all the time in conversations you try to get affirmation from people who are significant to you not because there's low self-esteem that's a symptom it's that there's alienation there's no Father, mother, in life. Sometimes you will wonder who will love me and what am I worth. So you'll cycle in and out of relationships and you'll give yourself to other people in relationships far sooner than you should because you're trying to answer that echo that is still in your head. Sometimes You will wonder, who will look out for me and who can I trust? And so you will throw yourself headlong into your work and try to build a name for yourself there. You might become obstinate, bullish. You might become angry and so bully other people. You might be a control freak because outside of you, no one is looking out and there is no one you can trust. This morning, I wanna introduce you to three people from our church. They're gonna preach the rest of this sermon. I'm just gonna set them up. Are you okay? Are you good with this? Because we're gonna do it, but I just want you to know what's about to happen. The first story comes from Luke chapter 7. Jesus is inside of Simon the Pharisee's house. There's a circle of men sitting around a table. It's a men's only club. No women are allowed. Not when the men eat in that culture. A woman comes walking in off the street. When she gets into the room, She just stands behind Jesus, and the way that they sat at tables was with their legs draped out behind them like this while they leaned into the table. And while she stands at his feet, she begins to cry, and her tears come down and hit him on the feet. Then she bends over and she kisses him, and to everyone's astonishment, begins to pour oil on his feet. Simon, who owns the house, the righteous guy, sees this. And he thinks to himself, first, what's she doing in here? Second, he thinks if that guy was everything he said he was, he'd know the kind of woman who's doing this to him. This is the words. She's a sinful woman. He ought to know that if he's everything he says he is. Jesus reads his mind Looks across the table and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, says Simon. Jesus says, when I came into this room, this is your house. You never washed my feet, and she did. You didn't kiss my head, and she did. And you didn't pour oil on my head like you were supposed to, to all of your guests. And she poured oil on my feet then. To Simon's astonishment, he looks across the table and says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go into peace. And she gets up to leave. And when she leaves, everybody's situation has changed. The woman who came in, a sinner, goes out a saint. Simon, who thought he was a saint, finds out he's the bigger sinner. The woman comes into an all men's club and she stands there alone. But when she walks out, she belongs to the community of Jesus. And in a strange way, it is Simon who is all alone in a room full of friends. When Jesus reconciles people to himself, their fortunes change. We have people like that in our church. One of them is Mickey Anderson. Mickey, where are you at? Come on up here. Mickey's from New York. Grew up out there, and then she says through a series of circumstances she couldn't predict, ended up at college church. She's worked in... restaurant Applebee's worked on airplanes (laughs) and she has uh, a story about how she had some of these same feelings or marks that the woman at Jesus' feet did. Mickey, tell us.
2: You got more people. Yeah,
0: there's more
2: people. Okay. Galatians 6.10 says, therefore, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Several years ago, back in 2010, I was still living in New York. I got shot in a drive-by, random drive-by, while headed from my front door to the car service that was waiting for me. My driver immediately put me in his car, drove me to the emergency room. For three months, I was in the hospital. I didn't know what was going on. felt so alone and very discouraged. The church that I had gone to then checked in on me every now and then, but offered no sense of belonging. It was a long recovery that eventually led me to Marion. Still can't find a cab here. (laughs) I would have never imagined what would happen here in Little Marion at CWC. For most of my life, I had felt like a Northman, even with my family, and even with being a part of other congregations. I struggled a lot with a sense of being me, always trying to live up to others' standards and what others' definitions were of being ideal. My grandparents had instilled a value of love and acceptance to other people in my life, but I found it to be a task when looking for that in other people. Whether it was to go to college so I can have a place to stay, or having a job that provided me a place to stay. I never felt like I belonged to anyone or anything. Truly such a lonely place. I look forward now to the present. God has always looked out for me. Even through very tough times. Illness and loss. After my recovery from the shooting, he led me to this community of believers that not only talked about faith, but also acted out their faith. When I first started coming to College Church, Pastor Eric had assigned me to Pat and Paul Decker's group through Soul Shift. I'd missed the first few meetings, and then I got an email from Paul wondering where I was. I immediately noticed the signature block that said Radio Lumiere, a WGM radio station in Haiti. When I inquired about this, I asked if he by any chance knew my aunt, who had worked there many years ago. Imagine my surprise when he responded, my wife and I knew her very well, and Pat worked with her at Cascaille Christian School. This was affirmation to me, that we are never alone. Even in the time of being lonely, God watches the smallest details and he knows what he is doing. Sometimes we have to wait and not get ahead of what God does in our life. We just have to be open to change and willingness to obey. Being in a small group was such an amazing way for me to plug into this church and to build A community around my husband and I. I think you'd find that as I did, it brings you closer to God, your faith, and other people. When you allow God to work, you find that even if the road is a bit rough, he will always have something better, far better, in store for you, and uses his church in powerful ways. He had something far more for me than what I could have ever imagined. I'm learning to let him do the work and trusting others in my walk with Christ.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Scene 2. Jesus is going into a village near Galilee and a leper sees him coming, falls straight over frontward, puts his face to the ground, won't even look at him. And then he just yells out, Lord, if you're willing, I can be clean. This should never have happened. Leprosy is a debilitating disease that ruins not only the complexion, but even the muscles. Eventually, it can take a person's life. That's the last part. Before it does that, it takes just about everything else, including their dignity. Lepers in those days were unclean people. They could not go into a village. They could not get a job. They couldn't go to the temple, and they couldn't even live at home. They lived in colonies outside of the village, leprosariums. Whenever they happened to come into the public, they were to announce themselves by saying, unclean, unclean, so the public, the normal folk, would have time to get away from them. You can only do that for so long before you start wondering who you are and whether you're worth it. After a while, that just burns into your conscience. So with his face to the ground and unable to even look at Jesus... The leper says, Lord, if you're willing, I can be clean. And Jesus never says a word until he touched him. This is powerful, church. Jesus commits what the public would have thought was social suicide. He touched a leper. And everyone would have said, he does that, he's going to get what that leper has. But in Jesus' mind, it was exactly the other way. When I touch him, he's going to get what I have. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. Suddenly, a man who wondered for years if he was loved and what he was worth is new in a second it must have taken weeks to work his way back into the community, to come back home, to find a job, to stray somewhere near the temple, to be in the public that he had to avoid for years. But when Jesus reconciles people to God, he changes their destiny, everything about them. Sometimes it takes a long time to get it all back, but as Jesus gets active in their life, their fortunes Change. We have people like that in our church. Leanne Martins is a counselor, was a counselor, come on up, Leanne, for a long time. And while she would counsel others toward a more whole life, she wrestled with that haunting voice that often bothers you when you wonder, am I loved and what am I worth until Jesus began to reconcile?
3: I began began my relationship and journey with Jesus my freshman year of college at Iowa State. He revealed himself to me through my roommate, who was a fragrant aroma of Christ. She loved me and liked me just the way I was. For the first time in my life, I knew knew and experienced God's love and forgiveness. I so hungered to know and please him. I dove headlong into studying the Bible, praying, serving and doing things for him. I was learning about God, but really saw him as distant, someone who expected me to do things right all of the time and one I could never really please or connect to. My daily interactions with God and how I, had experience, how I experienced him had been shaped and influenced by my family relationships, the abuse I had experienced from various adults and other hurtful life experiences. What I read in the scriptures and was told about God were filtered through those templates developed in those relationships. Over the next several years, God used people and experiences to give me new and different glimpses of him. Some I could grasp, but there were other aspects of him I could not even see or hear, as the wounds and lies disguised as truth shouted louder. I continued to do and give to others in a desperate attempt to please him, Every fiber of my being wanted God to like me and to have an intimate relationship with him. About 14 years ago, all of my attempts to make this happen brought me to a place where I had no more to give and the wounds were quickly rising to the surface. I was terrified of the wounds as I had no idea what they were and I could not trust anyone to come close enough to see them. But God brought people, counselors, friends, family, my husband and kids, little children, co-workers, clients, and other wounded ones to be part of healing and redeeming my wounds, and a lot of you here have been some of those people. Through them, I have seen and continue to see who God really is, how he loves me and feels about me. Every day, he initiates, invites, and reveals to me the love and intimacy he longs to have with me. If I'm honest, I don't really understand why he loves me. I keep walking on this healing journey and trying to grasp, embrace, and get to know this God who doesn't just love me but likes and enjoys me. He's revealing to me that he's patient, kind, gentle, giving, loving, forgiving, and much more, regardless of what I do, feel, or experience. He doesn't fix everything or keep me from the pain and junk of life but he's with me. He is continually inviting me to be a part of the lives of others in their suffering and brokenness and to work with him as he loves, heals, and redeems their pain and brokenness. What a glorious, mysterious Mm -hmm. privilege.
0: Wow. Thank you. Thank you. you. the last guy I want you to meet sometimes reminds me of Peter. I've known Gary for some time, and um, he has some of Peter's characteristics, and something of what happened to Peter has happened to him. Peter's story is also in Luke chapter 5. One day, Jesus is walking on the shore of Galilee, and he looks over, and he sees two boats, and there's fishermen in them, uninvited, unwelcome. He just goes over to one of the boats and steps inside of it and says to the fisherman, hey, would you mind pushing this boat off so I can preach? <laughs> turns out the fisherman's Peter, Simon, is his name. And he does it. Do you know anything about this guy? He's really strong-willed and determined, kind of an individual. But for some reason, he just pushes off. Jesus steadies himself in the boat and starts to preach. And when the sermon's over, he then turns and says to Peter, Why don't you push out a little bit further and drop the net, and we'll get some fish. Peter thinks to himself, Let me see here. I'm a fisherman. He's a carpenter. He turns to Jesus and says, We've been doing this all night long and haven't caught a blasted thing. And then he says something that surprises everyone, even Peter. He says, But because you say so, I'll do it. He puts the boat back a little further into the deep water, and he throws the net overboard. And it's but a minute or two, and he feels that familiar drag on the net, and the boat starts to rock. He'd been fishing all night and not caught a thing. Now he just drops the net, and there's hundreds of fish inside of it. Slowly, the boat is so full of fish, it's starting to sink Peter's sitting in the middle of the boat while his friends are screaming in a frenzy. He's got water up around his knees. He looks over to Jesus and says, I do not deserve to be in this boat with you. Go away from me. I'm a sinful person. And Jesus said to Peter, in so many words, quite the opposite, sir. As of today, your occupation is about to change. You used to be a fisherman, but as of today, you're going to fish for people. One simple act of obedience, just put your nets down. Do something that seems outrageous to you, something that you're sure wouldn't work because you know, and give God room to act. Gary uh, is a pretty strong-willed individual, If you've met him, you know that he's a determined person. Uh, But there was a time in his life when God changed all that. Come on up, Gary, and tell us about that season in your life where God called you into a different occupation. Well, in
4: 1986, I had a dream job job that uh, from high school and college is something that I always wanted to do. I was a pilot for a U.S. care corporation and I loved it so much that you wouldn't probably even have to pay me to do the job. I just do it. And so you can tell all my self-esteem and, and self-worth came from that. But I got called into the headquarters one day and they told me that the airplane was repossessed and I go, well, what am I going to do? I'm the pilot and they go, this is your last day. That was the end of it, and that started to spiral down for me of despair and not knowing what I was going to do. At first, I thought, well, I can get another job easy. Um, uh, There's a lot of things I can do, but I started going and interviewing, and one rejection after another started changing me a little bit. And uh, I, I, the, the rejections were almost cruel, but, but it's like the door was slamming right in my face. I get to a, to a company, and they said, we just put a freeze on hiring today, the day that I showed up. Uh, went to another company, and they go, you won't believe this, but um, we just lost our government contract that we thought we were going to hire you for, and now we can't hire you. And one I went to, it was RCA here in town. And uh, they actually gave me a job only to call me back the next day and say, we just got bought out by this Thompson Consumer Electronic Company. We don't even know if our job's gonna be there, so we can't hire you. College Church came around me during this time. And I'm so thankful for you guys. Uh, Guys like A guy by the name of Ben Meadows was a mentor to me. He came along beside me, and we'd have breakfasts together. He said, Gary, God has a plan for you. And uh, just he became almost like a recruiter for me. He would call companies, hey, you got a job, and he would line up interviews, and I didn't even want to go to. I I go, I I, I don't want to go. I don't want to be rejected again, but he would keep pushing me forward. I got an opportunity to interview, and I, and, and I was excited about it. It was a pilot job for uh, Nationwide Management, Tom Phillippe's company, and, but it had a, a quirk to it. They said, our pilots also work in nursing homes, and we'd want you to become an administrator in a nursing home and work in a nursing home. I said, oh, I can't do that. I do not like blood and body secretions and smells. <laughs> I cannot do that, and so I kept turning that down. I, I cannot do that, I, I, um, but I kept on interviewing and going out there, and this month led to another month, to another month, and now nine months later and no job and no money, out of operate, uh, options, our Sunday school class came alongside Connie and I, uh, had no money, they gave us money. They gave us food. They prayed with us. And we're eternally grateful for that. Gave us hope when there didn't seem like any hope. When I was on a job interview and uh, another rejection, it just wasn't going good. And I was driving home from the interview so desperate. I had to do something desperate here. And I was passing through downtown and I thought, I'm gonna go downtown and look for a job and just drive around the downtown. So I decided in my desperate state that I was going to drive around the courthouse and keep driving until one or two things happen. One, I find a job or I run out of gas. <laughs> so I started driving around, around the courthouse, around, around. And what I was doing, I was wrestling with God. Why can't you give me a job? Why is it every time I get a job, I go to it and a door slams in my face. It's like he said. There's still one door open, the nursing home job. And after a lot of driving around that courthouse, I finally said, dear God, give me a job. I'll do anything. I'll even work in a nursing home. And from that moment, the burden lifted from me. And uh, I went to work in the nursing home and I fell in love with it. I, I enjoy it even more than my dream job. And uh, Steve talked about our work and our job, our work being God-ordained work. And I feel like my God-ordained work is to take care of other people's parents as if they were my parents. And my job as CEO of our company is to create a a, a culture, an atmosphere where everybody from the certified nurses' aide, housekeepers, all the way up to the administrators, They take that same attitude of taking care of other people's parents as if they're their own. Now roll forward 30 years now, today. All of those jobs that I was so angry, why God, why can't you give them to me? Every one of those companies have gone out of business and moved, every one of them. And my little company started with one person, has grown to like 3,000 people. One company grown into over 30 companies. Not, nothing that I've done that Roy, really, it's just that I followed his plan and hung on for the ride. That's basically it. See, this is what I was going to accept. And this is what he had for me.
0: Well, here's the message for today. I think every one of us are already involved in relationships, whether at work or at home, in the dorm, in the office, the boardroom, the locker room, wherever it is. There are people all around us, and we keep looking at them through one lens. What we've learned today is that our fundamental problem is that we are separate from God, and that has a thousand different symptoms. And until we settle that one problem, everything else will just keep moving. Can I encourage you to go out today with that in your mind? When you're in conversations with people and you're listening to them talk, or you just watch them live in front of you, could you ask yourself, what does distance look like? In this person's life what are they doing or saying as a result of a deeper problem what has God already done and what is he doing now to bring that person back to himself and what can I do to be part of that process